Scott Walter, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. Today, we are going to have part two of our special two-part podcast with Armstrong Williams and Michael Watson talking about the new book, Crisis in the Classroom. Well, let me, let me get to another crisis that your book talks about, uh, and that is one that uh, Mr. Crump himself describes in an essay on the crisis of entrepreneurship. Um, people would not necessarily immediately think about the connection between entrepreneurship and education or why entrepreneurship is a, is actually a really important thing in poor communities. Uh, can you help us understand that? Well, uh, listen, um, you've got to be able to communicate and you learn to communicate by English, communicating with people, um, how to, put you learn how to negotiate um um there's just so many things and you also learn basic math um to make sure uh and numbers to make sure that you're not exploited because i mean you i mean the prime example is a lot of these athletes that don't necessarily graduate from college or graduate from high school and how four or five years after they're in their league they're bankrupt because they're agents and others just exploit them because the bottom line, if you don't have an education, people can exploit you and take advantage of you because you don't know if your money is being stolen. You don't understand how taxes work. You don't understand how investments work. And so the problem is you're no more than a slave because you're totally control, controlled by somebody who's educated and knows how to take money out of your bank account. And you don't realize it's even being taken in the process. So a quality education is so important to make sure that what you work so hard to achieve, that it's not exploited and stolen from you by somebody that's whose sole profession is to exploit your lack of knowledge, your lack of information, your lack of understanding to create wealth for themselves. Well, thank you. And I, I want to get our Michael Watson in here. Uh, Michael Watson is a uh, is the research director for Capital Research Center. And uh, Mike, I know that you have studied a great deal about the role of teachers unions in uh, the troubles of urban education. So can you tell us a bit about how uh, persons who were upset about the poor quality of education that Armstrong has been lamenting uh, how they can work to reduce the the unfair advantages that teachers' unions have in uh, setting the education policy for our schools. Well, I think it's fitting, uh, Armstrong, that this all sort of started around the pandemic when what the pandemic showed to parents. You are not the first person to come on this program and mention that. Um, where, because what it what it revealed as teachers unions were pushing for these school closures and then pushing to extend them long beyond any reasonable, uh, you know, any, any reasonable extent that we could say, okay, this is a legitimate public health measure. Uh, you know, people saw more and more what was in the curriculum, what they what their children were being taught. Some of them, uh, actually, I hadn't really thought about the. Uh, the rural broadband issue and kids not and and the 
uh, you know, issue of not having access to, to broadband internet, um, which obviously, if, you know, as, as Armstrong mentioned, if you don't have that, you're just going to be left behind. Um, and so, but what you ended up with in a lot of places, especially in Maryland, uh, and it wasn't just in Baltimore, it was statewide, was these school boards that were largely backed by teachers unions uh, were keeping children out of school. And part of how they gain this advantage, even in a place like uh, Baltimore City, where there's, you know, politically one party government, is that the way that school board elections are structured. Now, Maryland, they, at least uh, where I live in Anne Arundel County, they are in November of even numbered years. Uh, but oftentimes they're not partisan elections, uh, which gives an unfair advantage to a permanently organized interest group, like a teacher's union. Uh, they may not, uh, they may be elected by, by slate, where you vote for multiple people for multiple seats, uh, which also gives advantage to a permanently organized interest group, like a teacher's union. And as a result, you can end up with a situation where the public may want one thing, but just the way that the institutional organization works, they can't effectively make that clear to the government through electoral processes. You know, if I could add to that, because, um, you know, I think I, you know, you do so much writing, but I, I think in, um, I touched on this in my book because teach, teachers unions are, to the education of students, what a ball and chain are to a swimmer. Um, there's this kind of educational mission, mission is sort of the collective maximization of pay and benefits coupled with the collective minimization of work. And so what the students learn is an afterthought, like an extra incessant de mills cinematic extravaganza. Seriously. And so unionized teachers deplore excellence. I, I'm just sorry. I, I, it's the fact. An extra effort because tacit aspersion is sort of cast upon mediocrity of words, which characteristically earmark all large organizations. If you want to be truthful about it. And um, I'm sorry. Oh, I mean, a, a factory floor business model, which is what any sort of labor union is going to to enforce you know seniority pay by how long you've been there and then you know what uh what credential you got from uh you know whatever whatever university uh you know that that is not going to promote innovation that is not going to promote commitment to an to the outcome which we want to see which is students who are ready to whether they're going to go to university, whether they're going to go into a trade, that are going to have a productive and full uh, economic and social life uh, for the rest of their lives. And then, you know, when that's not the outcome variable that your institution is designed to create, um, people are going to be left behind. And that is going to lead us into the crisis that Armstrong and his co and his uh, co-authors described. And the other part I was going to say, you have to keep this in mind. The growth of teachers' unions correspond to a decline in student learning. Think about that. Although 
there are multiple causes of the vertical fall. Teachers unions are a prime culprit. Why? By removing monetary incentives for teachers' excellence demonstrated by student achievement. And so what these unions have done, Scott, they've turned the profession of teaching from one of superior uh, superior morality to one of profit-seeking. It's about profit-seeking. And union leaders have sued, think about this, to prevent the opening of charter schools so that their union power is not threatened. We haven't even touched on um, charter schools yet. I mean, the New York State Union Teachers and the United Federation of Teachers sued to block a charter school from opening. And while the teachers union spent thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands, to prevent what is considered in this case to be an extremely prestigious school in New York City, public schools continue to be plagued with high crime, filled with below the poverty line students. And so in some money from the teachers union is being used to block children's opportunities for superior education compared to what is obtainable in public schools. Yeah, no, thank, thank you. Uh, you're right, Armstrong. We absolutely should talk about charters. W- one thing we want to make clear, because a lot of people don't understand this, is that the charter school is a public school. It's just a public school that has a lot less of the red tape and regulation of a typical public school. So they can do things like what you just said, namely they can pay excellent teachers better for succeeding at teaching their students, Um, which of course, everywhere outside of schools, we assume that. If you're better as a broadcaster than somebody else, you're gonna make more money. If you're better shooting baskets, you're gonna get more money in the NBA. I mean, it's insane that we don't think such things matter uh, when it comes to teaching millions of uh, children every day. Um, well, let me bring in uh, your third author of this uh, very important book, Crisis in the Classroom. Uh, the third author is Dr. Ben Carson, and I've had a few interactions with him over the years myself. It, he's got such a staggering story, right? I mean, uh, he, he blows up all the myths that uh, that if you're born underprivileged, your life is just doomed. His mother was illiterate. He grew up in a slum with very large rats uh, frequently seen. And yet he ended up uh, one of the top brain surgeons in the whole world at Johns Hopkins. Uh, That's a pretty staggering uh, trajectory. I don't think you see it in many countries beside America. Um, I think Americans of all colors would rejoice in that story. Um, but he talks about uh, a crisis of faith, Armstrong. And could you tell us a little bit about why uh, faith and religion are another important factor in the crisis in the classroom? Uh, for a minute, I thought Dr. Carson was joining us. <laughs> I got excited. Well, you know, listen, um, freedom comes from God and not from man. It takes just as much to maintain it as it did to establish it. And an education without character, without moral striving, without values, without virtues, without discipline, without sacrifice is meaningless. We've seen it through the history of of the world. You can have all the wealth, all the technology, but if you don't have morality, if you don't have standards, um, if you don't have res- self-respect, then 
those societies have the, the tendency to destroy themselves within. And so morality is the lifeblood of sustained progress. And anyone who knows, it also teaches you how to behave, how to acknowledge your fellow human being. Uh, and it teaches you that we're part of a greater community. It teaches you discipline. Uh, it, it gives you a structure that you must obey the law and not be disruptive. And so faith um, in something greater than yourself are the things that at the end of the day gives us peace. Because, you know, it's just like um, at the end of the gestation period of pregnancy and the wonderful thing that happened at the birth of your child, you cut the umbilical cord. But what you're doing, you're disconnecting this child from its power source. And so that child is sort of rudderless. And, and so what happens is when that child is disconnected from its power source, it goes through life trying to connect to some kind of power source. Sometimes it goes through drugs. Sometimes it goes through power. Sometimes it goes through sex. Sometimes it goes through um, the, the lying and cheating and stealing. But until you reconnect to God and the creator and morality and moral striving, you will never find peace and stability in your life. Well, Armstrong, that's very well said. And it uh, reminds me of one more essay in the book, one of yours. Uh, and you talk about a crisis of home life, uh, which is, of course, another great source of virtue, self-discipline, uh, uh, and just having a life ordered to uh, success. So can you tell us a, a bit about that? Well, your, your actions speak so loudly. Uh, I cannot hear sometimes what you're saying. Children must be taught how to write. It is the most intellectually demanding of all disciplines, if you ask me. A child can start with a daily task of one sentence um, and sort of then maintain a protocol of writing, daily paragraphs or diary entries until it becomes as enjoyable as any game. And so, you know, what... You, 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 when you think about when you think about this, um, educational excellence is within the reach for every family, regardless, regardless of the socioeconomic status. And ethos of learning spreads throughout a household is the key. Siblings and parents should read nonfiction and fiction brimming with moral tales to one another, such as Uncle Tom's Cabin. A uh, Huckleberry Finn, a uh, Frederick Doug Douglass, a uh, Booger T. Washington. They should play word games such as Scrabble, write each other's essays or poems, and sort of compete to see who reads the most each month, how many can read the most books, and discuss what, what is in this book. And so the cost and, of this is minimal, and all that is needed are changes in attitude, discipline, and priorities. And this is what parents install instilling you in the household because in that household there was such a thirst for knowledge there was a hunger to read you know I was in Europe and that continent of Africa and Asia before I was four or five years old I knew about artists like Gerberti and I knew about Auguste Rodin and I knew about Chagall and Salvatore Dali and I knew about the great poets of our time and I knew about Shakespeare and screw tape letters all these things I learned as a child and I learned it fed me. 
Uh, and one of the things that Dr. Carson talked about also was when he was not doing well in school, he was self-taught. He could read about rocks. Um, um, he could read about geography. He could read about science. And he realized that sometimes the best teaching sometimes comes from your reading because education never stops. Even now for me, I read two books a week. Uh, and so when you think about this television, video games, and the litany of this new entertainment that is really accessible to children, it dumbs down their minds and should be either discouraged or banned from the household. We did not have that. We had to earn the right to watch television. And adults should know, they should know that entertainment is to learning what dessert is to the main course, a treat, but not a necessity. That's all it is. It's not a necessity. And most of us work long hours to support ourselves. And entertainment is secondary and comes only if something more is left over. And so children must be taught that same concept. Studies come first and entertainment comes only if that priority has been satisfied. That's what happened in our home. Because think about that. What if a child received 15 minutes of entertainment for every hour? that they read or write. That child was to receive an allotment of one hour of television for every 125 pages of a book they read. And so eventually, as the child reads more and more and watches television or play video games less and less, enjoyment will be derived from reading and there's this growing knowledge based then from mindless fixation on a screen. Uh, preach it. The, that's great stuff. The Well, um, Mr. Watson, I want to go back to you for a second and ask uh, again on the teachers union side of things, what do you think are some of the most hopeful signs in the country that the teachers unions uh, may be starting to lose in some of these uh, battles that you and Armstrong have been describing? There are, there are a few a few things in sort of different areas. Uh, the first is uh, there have been efforts to uh, separate the union from the teachers uh, legally and financially. Uh, most prominently, the Janus v. Afsme Supreme Court case, uh, which gave teachers in states such as Maryland that don't have right to work laws, uh, the power to at least stop funding uh, a teacher's union that uh, is approaching education and approaching public policy in ways they disagree with. Um, you also see in places uh, like Wisconsin and Iowa, where there are uh, stricter government employee unionism laws uh, that you know, that are reducing the power of, of government worker unions, of which teachers unions are the most prominent. There's been a little bit of pushback on this in states like Virginia and Colorado, but, uh, you know, so far, things seem to be moving in the right direction. Also, especially since COVID, we have seen uh, parental organizing or organizing on the parents and students side uh, that is beginning to contest uh, things like school board elections, that is beginning to contest education policy in the public space. Uh, you know, you have, uh, I think it was a headline in the Miami Herald uh, 
in the last couple of weeks that was just befuddled that there was now politics in school board elections because in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis endorsed a, a slate of local school board candidates, uh, many of whom won, uh, challenging uh, largely teachers union back candidates. Uh, and, and the Miami Herald just could not figure out that, you know, there was politics in, in these elections. How, how dare they? Uh, well, there's always been politics in school board elections. It was just the politics of teachers unions uh, pushing back against basically no organized opposition. And in public advocacy, uh, as important as ideas are, you know, all, all three of us are in the ideas business, um, organization is also important. And one thing that teachers unions have had uh, that they have basically not had opposition to is their organizations. They're, they're in many cases, massive uh, political and advocacy empires uh, that they can use to carry out the uh, the various rent-seeking policies that they that they have pursued for fifty years. Yeah, well, it's very comforting to hear that uh, that the way that parents are pushing back now and organizing more. Um, I'm a big fan of the group Parents Defending Education. Uh, I think they do a, a terrific job, both of investigating what's going on, including things like oh, the Gates Foundation and others' massive donations into school districts for dubious purposes, um, but also helping moms uh, get angry and and fight back against the, as you say, very well-organized, very well-funded teacher union and education status quo uh, complex. Well, uh, Armstrong, let me give you the last question because I know there'd be some people who heard everything we were ta talking about here and be getting angrier and angrier because here you are talking about faith and discipline and reading and entertainment. And, you know, you haven't talked about white supremacy and the real reason that poor black and brown kids are not uh, doing better at schools is because it's just a racist country determined to keep down uh, the next Ben Carson or Armstrong Williams or Ben Crump. Is that true? You know, I don't even... Um... You know, that's just a dividing factor to make kids feel that they're less than and that somebody else is the reason why they cannot get educated or navigate their way to find their definition of the American dream. I mean, you know, I did a piece in my book about the Amish communities and, and how they live a simple and traditional life on the farm. And they are often subject to ridicule due to their unconventional lives like riding horses and buggies and avoiding electricity and electrical devices, they, though, are frequently the ones with the last laugh. Just, there's just one classroom and eighth, only eight grades, only go up to eighth grade, and that's all. But they do not incur the significant debt in order to utilize ed education as a family for entry into life, nor do they spend years studying material that they will never use in order to get a job that they never needed a four-year degree in the first place. Instead, instead, these children labor and they learn the value of hard work from an early age. They see life as a classroom and strive daily to improve themselves through their work. And they have this strong two-parent family structure to provide them with more stability and certainly throughout their entire childhoods. And, and so when you think about even without a formal or uh, extensive education, strong family life, 
can lead to tremendous achievement. You know, we make too much out of poverty, out of poor people, out of race, and not enough about the importance of a too st- of strong two-parent household. I mean, you don't need to squat on the time on television or video games because you have access to them. I don't have access to them. You need to spend your time on things that grow you, that build your character, build your foundation, not for, for tomorrow, but for but for the next day. And so there are just so many opportunities to go around, Scott. Generational wealth can be built by promoting hard work and not wasting time on indulgence and these nonsensical issues like white supremacy. Uh, you have black supremacy. You can have any kind of supremacy, but it has to do with the individual. We're not groups. We're individuals. Just because someone that looks like me thinks a certain way, that's not my value system. God created us individually. When we die and we take our last breath on earth, on earth and we take our first breath either in heaven or hell, God could care less about our race. He could care less about our gender. He cares about, did you do the work? Did you serve me? Did you strive to keep my commandments? And so when family, education, and discipline are respected, they build value and give an education experience unequal by conventional school schools. And it's not an artificial act, formal education. Rather, it is genuine education in its purest form. And so that's what we have to do. we got to tell every child, you have the capacity to learn. No one will fail as long as someone believes in you. And the one thing that we had in our household growing up is that our parents believed in us. They believed we had the capacity to be good, to learn. But that requires discipline, hard work, and sacrifice. Being good and being successful is not easy. And you have to work on it every day. You can't just work to have success for six months, a year. You have to grow the kind of seeds, the kind of foundation, so you can have it for a lifetime. Well, that's a very inspiring note to end on. Uh, I want to thank you again, Armstrong Williams, for joining us, and Capital Research's Michael Watson. Uh, for a very exciting show on Armstrong's new book, Crisis in the Classroom. Uh, That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thanks. Please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see everyone next week.